From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Boulder often lands on lists of the best places to live, but for whom? At CU, a new center puts the focus on African and African-American studies and creates a space to build community. Our center is an African village. We want to create that African village vibe in Boulder, Colorado. Not going to be easy. This needs to happen because of the continued stories of hurt and trauma and isolation that Black people experience. Mm -hmm. So I hope there's a place where that can be expressed, but we can also bridge those gaps and, and heal. Plus, twin brothers from Denver's East High School are among the best of the best on the national speech and debate stage. You can transcend any problem or any thing that's going wrong because you have that power to overcome it with just the power of your voice. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. After a 17-year effort, the University of Colorado Boulder officially launched its Center for African and African-American Studies this past fall. Just before it opened, I toured the center with its founding director, Professor Raylan Rabaka, recent CU grad Ruth Wodemichael, who helped co-found this center as a student, also joined us on the tour. Rabaka's enthusiasm was evident from the moment we stepped into the first room, a place he likens to a boardroom. This is really, really important, I think, for me, not simply as a director, but also as a um, professor, because this is a space where students will be able to defend their honors theses. Can you imagine that, Ruth, if you would have been able to, to defend in here, or their master's thesis, or their doctoral dissertations? Some of the students feel incredibly alienated on the Boulder campus. Sometimes they're the only African or African-American in their department. So imagine if they could bring their committees and their family and their friends to a space where they can feel comfortable. Portions of the center will open through 2023. And Professor Robaka's vision is for the Center for African and African-American Studies to eventually serve students, alumni, faculty, staff, and the community at large. Students like Wodemichael played an essential role in making the case for the center to university leaders. They also helped design the space itself, which they proudly note is centrally located on the Boulder campus inside Mackey Auditorium. This will also be where the Black Student Alliance and the African Student Alliance and the Caribbean Student Association will all have their meetings here. The NAACP, um, Boulder County, is raising a million dollars for our center. Wow. Um, they were the first, so even before the university. Mm. Um, so they were the first to really commit to supporting the center and some of the activities that we're doing and everything. So this is our conference room. It's still, you know, we're still getting it together. Well, describe it for us. So there's this big oval table. Yes. A space where we can take care of business. And we have the fabrics, obviously. The orange, the fuchsia, the royal blue, mm -hmm. the stripes, just the shapes. Uh, these African accents are really, really important 
I think in the African diaspora. So I have students from Brazil, from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, from the Dominican Republic, right? From out from Mexico, yeah. right? From all over, but we're scattered all throughout the Americas being part of the African diaspora, living in the African diaspora. The cultural dynamism that takes place, I want to recreate some of that in Boulder. Not going to be easy, but I want to, <laughs> I want to recreate some of that uh, in Boulder. And in fact, we say that we want to, our center is an African village. We want to create that African village vibe in Boulder, Colorado, that space where it's radically inclusive. Everybody is welcome. Nobody need be excluded. Mm -hmm. But if you want to learn about African culture, you want to engage African culture, come to the cause, right? Which is what we call the Center for African and African American Studies, the cause. And I kind of get this sense that you want this experience here at the center to be a celebration, like to feel like a celebration of the culture. Absolutely. Well, in African American Studies, we say that there's a tendency to overfocus on the tragedy. Mm. We also need to focus on the triumph. So by the very fact that we have this center here at the University of Colorado Boulder, it's a triumph, right? Now, I could sing Sam Cooke. It's been a long time coming to get here, right? It's been a lot of struggle, right? A lot of late nights, early mornings, a um, lot of meetings and dealing with all this stuff. But now is one of those magical moments where we can have an open house and say we have a permanent space in Boulder, Colorado to share African-American culture. Well, I was on the campus in 2013 to 14 wow. doing a fellowship with the journalism school. Wow. So I so, have a point of reference okay. to some of the things that you're talking about. So two points in particular to drive home. The cultural alienation that the students, the black staff, faculty feel. But for me as a prof, the intellectual isolation. Can you imagine there's nobody else, right, mm. um, who's dedicated full-time to do African-American studies, to do African studies, to do Caribbean studies? So a lot of times when my colleagues can go and have coffee or tea and talk about the latest journal <laughs> or article or the latest book that came out in their field, I've got to call Atlanta. I've got to call <laughs> Chicago. I've got to call Detroit. Mm -hmm. I've got to call Ruth. And so this is what makes, I think, me have a very unique rapport with my students because oftentimes they are interested in many of the things that I'm interested in. So where are we now? <laughs> We're in the director's office. This is my office, and I wanted to bring some of my personality um, to my office, something that's really, really important um, for me to, to, to build a sense of belonging here on the Boulder campus. So. So we have cloths from different countries mm -hmm. um, on the wall, from Tanzania, from Mozambique, from Ghana, from Nigeria, um, Angola. We have some of my books. I'm a geek. Uh, uh -oh, I read wow. three to four books a week. So <laughs> I'm somebody who grew up, we, we didn't have, you know, uh, TV. And so these books, actually, Chandra, are what first gave me a glimpse of the world beyond the projects, you know, where I grew up. Well, all I can say is since you have Prince, you're super cool and <laughs> it's over. No, but I see you have Marvin Gaye, I see you have Lead Belly, uh, uh, books about Safari style and yeah. Little Richard, a uh, little bit of everything, Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. And then this huge, huge portrait of Malcolm X holding a newspaper. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. I also see sculptures, 
books on Africa, hip hop, Mandela, and you feel like just just having this presence, it kind of is a welcoming sign. Like I embrace this culture. This is our culture. Kind of a message. Absolutely. I mean, students have come into my office before and said, "Wow, this is like walking into Africa." I think I've never been there. Like this is the most African room I've ever been in. You know. So this whole notion of there's a lot of myths and stereotypes about continental Africa. Mm-hmm. But, wow, the Africa that I know, the Africa that I go to, is really incredible. I also think that there's a tendency to talk about Africa in the past. Mm. So, and not the present. All right, let's keep going. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to go to the main office next. Now, don't it look different than the last time you was yeah, here? last time I was here, it was empty. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you glad they bought me some furniture? <laughs> All right, so where are we now? We're in the main office for the Center uh, for African and African American Studies. We have started, just started, to put some of the art on the wall. It's very important, I think, for um, our folks to see images of us. Yeah, you know? so images of black and brown people. Yeah. But reaffirming images, positivity. Always. That's what the cause is about. So so now we're in the main space where students are going to hang out. This is what we call the living room. Okay. The living room. And you can see there's the lectern. So this is a space where we can do poetry readings. We can do lectures and community events can happen here. You can also see the lounge area where students can actually relax. uh, And these have got to be the coolest pillows I've ever seen. (laughs) Uh, A black astronaut and uh, beautiful, colorful images of black and brown people on the pillows. And then the pillow with the Adinkra symbol. There and then more art on the walls. So again, what do you um, hope the students will get out of being in here? Wow, just a space to build community. Leaders and the the executive board of black student organizations will have a chance to meet in the conference room or even in his own office. But for a long time, black student organizations haven't had a space where they can have not only their executive meetings, but hold their events and where they can invite their members to come. We used to have to basically fight for space on campus, well, literally fight for space with other student organizations. So now, like, the living room is a perfect space where we can come together, whether that's study nights, tutoring, or just having events or coming, uh, meeting up for, for lunch or after our classes. This is a centralized space where, for the first time, black students can come and be freely in community, can connect with one another, can connect with faculty and the cause staff. It's never happened before so I'm really excited for students to have this space where they're I mean it's so vibrant it's so colorful there's black imagery everywhere and nowhere else on campus will be able to find this type of environment that is made by us for us and I'm noticing over here on the wall community rules some of which include limit electronics listen actively but also what's said here stays here what's learned here leaves here This space is a safe space. It's a brave space for students and people of the black community to come and be themselves, to speak their minds. And all of that, as it says, what's said here stays here. What's learned here, you can take what's learned here and grow that out of the cause. A goal of the cause is for students to connect, but really gain tools to support them outside of this space and in the larger CU Boulder campus, but Boulder and just in their personal lives in general. Well, I noticed you mentioned the students, but what about the community? Do you hope the community will find some comfort and knowledge here? 
I do think so. I'm really excited to invite a black alumni here to say like, look, like y'all left a legacy here and this is what you can, can come home to. And also with the Boulder community at large, I'm sure they'll be invited to, to events so they can come and learn from our experiences and our stories because the cause is built through storytelling. The reason why we came and like, okay, this needs to happen is because of the continued stories of hurt and trauma and isolation that black people experience. Mm-hmm. So I hope there's a place where that can, that can be expressed, but we can also bridge those gaps and, and heal. This is the amazing associate director of the Center for African and African American Studies, John Robinson Miller IV. Um, and he is the one that really was central to interior designing um, our center. The art images out there, John chose those images. And since you are being credited with the design <laughs> concepts, what did you want students, or what do you want students to feel as they take in all of this? I want students to feel a pride. I want students to feel that each one of these pieces, fabrics, colors has a history and that history is in them. Um, And I think lastly, I really wanted the students to see themselves and like, and especially on predominantly historically white campuses, Oftentimes, they don't get to see themselves on the walls. They don't get to see themselves doing the things that they do. Um, and here is a place that, that they get to see that. Now I hear the do the right thing reference. <laughs> see yourself <laughs> on the wall. But uh, do you want to also create a level of cre- uh, curiosity to say, what is the What is the Sankofa image? Oh, yes, absolutely. So we have, and Dinker symbols, we have symbols and other iconography just kind of grounded in everything that we do. And through our programming, through our values, you will slowly start to learn what those things are. So on day one, you may not be able, you may just see and just see beautiful art and see beautiful colors. But once you start coming to more and more programs, you say, oh, I know exactly what that is. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. that? Oh, it's It exists outside of the stories and outside of the programs? Absolutely. We keep walking through a study space where Rebecca expects students will bring their laptops and complete coursework. Then we turn in somewhere unexpected. So wellness room. So this room is really, really important. Over the last 17 years that I've been here, so many of my students have come to my office who've experienced racial trauma on the Boulder campus. They... They've never been in a space where, again, I myself have gone a week and not seen another black person. That's never happened until I came to Boulder, Colorado. I mean, that's a kind of cultural violence almost. And so an emphasis on health and wellness, particularly mental health, Mm -hmm. was really, really important. So here is a space where students will be able to weekly get one-on-one therapy. Some of the students feel alienated uh, going Mm -hmm. to what's called counseling and psychological services, CAPS. Imagine if we could have the therapist come here and it was a therapist that's a black psychologist Mm. that understands racial trauma, that understands microaggressions. This room also serves as an interfaith room where students can come here to pray. They can come here to meditate. So there are a lot of different things, right? So this is a multi-purpose room. You can see here uh, that we have prayer rugs, right? We have the essential oils there. Um, You have a yoga mat. Mm -hmm. You have the prayer bowls. 
uh, and everything. But so this is a space where people just want some peace and quiet. Imagine if there's student conflicts. This is where some of these can be mediated. Now you see, Chandra, we're talking about the whole mm-hmm. person. So we want to emphasize self-care. This huge wall. And this is the hallway. This is the hallway. This is the long hallway leading back to the wellness room. At some point, this will be CU Boulder Black Wall of Fame. Wow. So we will have Charles Dunbar Campbell. That's the first African-American to graduate from CU in 1912. His photo will be here. Lucille Berkeley Buchanan, mm-hmm. right? The first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder in 1918. Her photo will be here. Many of the famous physicists, black, that we've produced, biologists, anthropologists, historians. Well, obviously, this is to honor history by uh, posting the photos of the alumni. But is it also to inspire students to say, this is you. You can do this as well. Absolutely. So now that we're here, it's kind of the the motto of the Black Women's Club movement, uh, which is lifting as we climb. So the higher we get up, these alumni get up, they want to help the students come up even higher. That's what this wall will be about. Awesome. When we come back, I sit down with Rebecca and Wodemichael and we talk about why it took so long for this Center for African and African-American Studies to exist at CU Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Throw a dart at a map of the American West, chances are a Chinese community once lived there. So writes author Tiao Lim Go. We've chosen her shimmering new book, Western Journeys, for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The Chinese have actually ended up in many small rural places. Either there was a mine or they were trying to build a railroad spur. Get a copy and meet the author in a virtual event February 23rd. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Let's rejoin the conversation with Professor Raylan Robaca and CU Boulder graduate Ruth Wodemichael. We're talking about the opening of the new Center for African and African American Studies on the Boulder campus. So, Dr. Robaca, the new Center for African American Studies is housed in Mackey Auditorium, where we're sitting now. When students graduate from CU Boulder, some have their department or smaller ceremonies here at Mackey, but historically, some Black students were not always allowed to participate in graduation ceremonies. Is there extra significance for you of having the new center housed specifically in Mackey Auditorium? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, after decades of exclusion to actually be included in such a, you know, the administration describes having a space in Mackey as having prime real estate. Mm. on the Boulder campus. I mean, you can see the library from here. You can see the rec, you know, the recreational center here. We're right across from the home of the College of Arts and Sciences, Old Main. We're looking at the quad and everything. So, yeah, I, I think that having a space for us in Mackey is incredibly significant. Uh, and, in fact, you know, the conversations with the administration about where the cause would be after we saw that they were going to approve it 
there was some really, Ruth, you recall, there was some really tense conversations about making sure we were not placed in a academic ghetto uh, somewhere <laughs> in the back of Boulder in a basement that you've never heard of that nobody would ever want to go. But believe me, people want to come to Mackey Auditorium. What's the biggest accomplishment or change that you hope for this new center? That we can actually get all three of our program areas up and running. And um, those are? Cohesively. Um, First and foremost, student services, Mm -hmm. a research program, and an arts program. Most centers on the Boulder campus are research centers. Mm -hmm. Or they're arts centers. Right. But to have research program, arts program, and student services in one center, that's kind of... That's hip hop. We remixed the concept yeah. of a center. Yeah. We, Remixing we, our reality. There you go. We we remix. We, there you go. Right all day long. And so, to like this is sort of like that Africanization, that African Americanization of a center. I'd like for the cause, our center, to have very special programs and projects where we're pairing students with faculty members, or we're pairing undergraduate students with graduate students. Most of the black students are surrounded by white faculty members. Hmm. When some of my students find out I'm first generation, Hmm. right, and you went all the way through, that's a model unlike the folks that have legacy. So I understand some of the alienation, some of the isolation that they feel. I feel tight going into the faculty lounge. I used to. I don't go there anymore. I used to feel tight, Chandra. (laughs) going to the faculty lounge when people are sitting around talking about $700 golf shoes and and drivers and nine irons and I don't know what none of that is, right? (laughs) And so for me, it it just, I feel oftentimes closer to the students because we come from similar backgrounds. You know, we, we know how it is to not have money for books. Ruth have seen students come to me and be like, listen, could you help me get this book? And I walk them straight to the bookstore and get their books. Mm hmm we have a student emergency fund that they can tap if they need a computer, if they need books, if they need help paying rent. You've been here 17 years. Can you tell us about some of the experiences you've had that have been challenging over 17 years on this campus? You know, first and foremost, feeling like I don't belong. You know, getting out of my car on the faculty parking lot and people double-taking. You know, it's that, it's that racial gaze thing where people let you know sort of you don't belong or they think you're odd or whatever. Uh, my very first day <laughs> uh, coming. And what year was that? Uh, 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got pulled over. Showed the officer my, uh, obviously my driver's license. I've got to move a lot slower than anybody else. I have to talk slow when they pull me over. I cannot keep my information in my glove compartment. I actually asked the officers, I said, hey man, listen, it's in my front pocket. I have no weapons. Would you like to get it? I can step out of the car. I don't want to get shot because I'm wearing my good clothes. I'm about to go lecture. I'm a professor here. After I give the officer my driver's license, give him my faculty ID, and then the situation looks a little different, you know, then. It's really painful to hear Dr. Ibraka talk about like the racial trauma that he experienced as a faculty member because that directly reflects what we experience as students and I think a lot of times I mean I know my freshman year I came here thinking like okay like once I get my degree like it's going to be different you know like things aren't going to happen but the Mm -hmm. same stories are reflected with being hyper policed by campus police or city police and um, like racial slurs being used or blackface and like these things are like I mean historically are just like patterns of what happens on 
this campus um, and it it stays yeah. in the air. I mean, a lot of us, like, in, in the black community, we talk about just, like, driving up. A lot of us get flashbacks or a lot, just, like, it's it's eerie and it's it's dark and it's heavy. That's the reality for the black experience in Boulder. Years ago, somebody came here for, like, a pre-collegiate program, like, an introduction to CU Boulder, and she shared with me last week, actually, that somebody wrote the N-word on the whiteboard in front of her dorm room. And she's like, yeah, I'm not coming to Boulder. And she didn't. She went somewhere else. So, like, these type of stories and experiences are what are, like, directly related to the lack of, like, black student recruitment and retention and just, like, survival and being able to succeed on this campus. So, Dr. Rabaka, do you hope that this center will be a draw to get more students of color, particularly um, black and African-American students? Absolutely. When I say recruitment and retention, yes, students, but also staff. Even last year, I met with over half a dozen uh, black faculty that different departments were attempting to recruit. Chandra, it goes even further. For all of the sports fans, it's going to help see you get uh, higher uh, ranked players if mm. they know right that there's a center here that's offering student programming student services five days a week mm. that would make all the difference in the world why am i saying this because the university of texas has had a black cultural center since 1969 university of california berkeley has had one of these since the 60s ohio state i can just all of our peer institute michigan i can all of our peer institutions have had these since the 60s since the 60s and here it is Hmm. <laughs> sorry. Oh, I'm about to get hyped. But at least we got it. Now, let me say, this is something CU Boulder did right. Now, how do we sustain it, though? Now that we're started, as, as the director, I have to think about, well, how do we build on the momentum that we have? And obviously, my larger goal is I want to endow the center before I leave this world and join the ancestors. I want this to go on. In perpetuity. This is the institution I have worked at the longest in my entire career. And when I'm gone, I would like for my gift to keep on giving back to CU Boulder. As you mentioned, most universities established these centers decades ago, and CU has centers for Latino and Latin American studies, and also indigenous studies and Asian studies. Why did it take so long? African-Americans have a saying, we're the last hired and the first fired. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think it's very easy to marginalize a group of less than 900 you know, students, maybe less than 1,000 students. Um, only about 2% of the student population are black students. Faculty, I think we have about three dozen. So it's very easy. Like you're talking 36, 37,000 students, only about 900 black students and even more than that, some of the, the students and the staff and the faculty are so racially traumatized, it's hard to think about building community and taking care of others when you actually need to take care of yourself. I think that being in African-American studies and doing it 24-7 is actually quite therapeutic for me. Like right now, Ruth, I actually do feel, I'm beginning to feel a sense yeah. of belonging and let's be honest, some of the alumni said, listen, uh, Dr. Baca, professor, I've never given one dime since I left CU Boulder, mm -hmm. but I will give to the cause. Hmm. They said, I will not donate to the, you know, why would I donate to a place that traumatized me, blah, 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 blah. I felt erased. But now with this new center, 
this is what institutional transformation looks like. So a lot of people have been tap dancing around it. They know that things need to change here. But what do we do to actually make it change? Ruth, what is your hope for this Center for African and African-American Studies at CU Boulder? Of course, we need to recruit black students and faculty, but I think the problem really relies on retention and what that looks like. And the center is literally the hub for supporting people financially, socially, with their mental health. And so supporting them as humans and also academically and like as students and faculty and academics, this is an interdisciplinary center. And I hope students can feel that. I hope they can feel students and faculty and black people in general can come here and feel supported, can feel like this is their home away from home and a campus that is very isolating and predominantly white and predominantly like just a history of harm. I hope um, that the students can come here and feel the radically transformed as individuals, but then also as community members, because that's what saved me. Of course, the center, the cause isn't going to fix all the problems. <laughs> it's not going to, you know, racism is not going to end after just because we have this part of the Mackey Auditorium. What would a CU Boulder or the city of Boulder look like where more people could feel a true sense of belonging? You want to start Ruth is over there making faces. <laughs> it's hard to even imagine for me. It still seems it's still, far-fetched for you. Yeah. For me, it's when Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the beloved community, mm-hmm. a, a community predicated on radical inclusivity. Mm-hmm. We are building a space where no one is unwelcome. I'm talking about without regard to race, gender, class, sexual orientation, ability, disability, nationality, immigration status, whether somebody's incarcerated, formerly incarcerated, right? I want to push the envelope. Right, which is a very African thing because when I go to the continent, people embrace me with open arms, right? So to bring some of that African ethic, mm-hmm. some of that African American. Right now, if you go to my grandmother's house, right? If you're anywhere in the neighborhood and she saw you, she's gonna say, Come on in here, baby, have some sweet tea with me. Not even knowing you, right? <laughs> my grandmama leave her front door open, right? Everything. When she go to the beauty shop, you don't have to lock up and everything. I wanna live in an environment where we build a beloved community. Shandra, if I can keep it real with you, uh, the cause is also secondarily about creating anti-racist allies mm-hmm. in Boulder. When I ride around this city, I live here in Boulder County, I see people with Black Lives Matter movement signs in their yards. Some of them, they know what I do, they know what I'm about, and they come to me mm-hmm. and say, what, what can I do? Like, I, I, I want to do more than... The symbolic solidarity, this is a concept that we keep pushing, right? So we all have a special contribution to make to the cause. This is one of the things that's become like a slogan. I'm trying to get that printed um, on TV. Yeah, yeah. I say that all the time. I got it. You know, everybody has a contribution to make to the cause, which is what we call our center. And I think that if we, if we really challenge people to ask themselves that question, what can you contribute to this multiracial, to this multicultural, to this feminist to this queer-friendly, trans-friendly, right, and disability-friendly space. I want it to be an experiment that goes well beyond our lifetime. I think it's also important that this center could be called the Center for Rehumanization. Because what else is the enslavement, right? What else is colonization on the African continent if it's not an attempt to dehumanize human beings 
And so we need real allies are going to help us rescue and reclaim our humanity. And when we do that, we will embrace a principle of our center, which is called Ubuntu, which means that I share humanity with everyone in this room. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you for having us. Raylan Rabaka is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and the founding director of the new Center for African and African-American Studies. Ruth Wodemichael is a CU Boulder graduate who helped co-found the center as a student. We spoke in September, just before the center was officially launched. Twin brothers at East High School in Denver are among the best of the best. They are state champions and represented Colorado at the National Speech and Debate Tournament in Kentucky last summer in the duo interpretation category. Tied to the earth. I mean, flushed faces looking at me telling me I couldn't fly. I couldn't break gravity's pool. But I'd show them. I'd show them all that I could fly. All the people who looked at me and crossed the street just because the color of my skin. I'd show them I could soar. Wow. Elias and Elias Ghosts are identical twins. The dynamic duel ultimately placed sixth in the tournament, their first ever national competition. Welcome, Elias and Elijah. Hello, 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 hello. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. Thank you for having us. And we're also joined by their coach at Denver's East High School, Noah Kaplan. Good to be here. Let's set the scene. You're in Louisville, Kentucky, in a huge auditorium Mm -hmm. filled with literally the best and brightest speech and debate competitors in the nation. So after a quick introduction, you both step onto the stage in these snazzy black and metallic gold tuxedos with coordinating bow ties, I might add. Yes. Looking like you're about to join in the Motown review. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But to put it more into context for your generation, maybe ready to take the red carpet at the MTV Video Music Awards. Oh, yeah. Hopefully that's what we're going for. (laughs) And so you take the stage and the crowd, just at the sight of you, they go wild. Mm -hmm. Elias, take it from there. What happened next? Um, I think I... Came up onto the stage. I walked on first, actually. And I was looking, and she, she announced our names. And we had a little, like, pre, like, kind of, like, rehearsal, address rehearsal before we went on, the a couple hours before mm-hmm. the actual tournament. So I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. This is what I think it's going to be. But when I walked up there, the stage just got bigger. The <laughs> lights were brighter. It was darker. You could feel the atmosphere and the vibe kind of just rising. Because the, the way the lady gave the introduction, she was like, the biggest competition, the most favorite competition in all of the entire tournament duo. And she said us, because we were the first speakers, so we were like, okay, we have to set the tone. We have to set the stage. And I walk on, and I look out into the crowd, and I couldn't see no one's eyes. All I heard was cheering. And I didn't know if it was 600 people there or 6 million people there. That's how <laughs> loud the crowd was. And the lights were bright. They were in my eyes. And I looked at my brother. I took a deep breath. And then we were off. 
And then Whoa. I think I pretty much blacked out that whole time. It was such a great <laughs> and um, such an adrenaline-pumping experience. I It was like an out-of-body experience for me. That's exactly, you took the words right out of my mouth. It sounds like in the movies where yes, like, you just see this like tunnel vision. And, yeah. yeah, it sounds pretty intense. What about you, Elijah? What do you remember about that moment when um, all eyes are on you? I remember uh, the first thing I thought to myself is if my heart jumps out of my chest, make sure you catch it. Um, <laughs> my heart was just bumping, bumping a million times in minute um i walk up behind my brother and then i turn around and like i said bright lights dark room and i'll remember okay look at the coaches smile <laughs> show them that i'm we're here look at the judges smile 10 times harder and show we're here to go and um i remember my brother looking at me and then that's when we we're off you ended up as the only all-black duo on the final round stage that must be pretty exciting yeah oh yeah definitely an amazing opportunity so Elijah, tell us about this category that you compete in. It's called the duo interpretation. Yes. What is it and what does it entail? Okay, so duo interpretation is two people. You um, you have a piece. You could cut it from a movie or script, a play, uh, things like that. And uh, it's about from anywhere from like seven and a half minutes to 10 minutes and 30 seconds. Mm. And uh, the magic of it is you can't look at each other. You can't touch each other. Well, I guess you can look at each other, but not directly in your each other's eyes. You can't mm-hmm. touch each other and there is no props whatsoever. Wow. Like even if you were walk to, to walk down the stairs, it would be considered as you using the stairs as props. So that's when you kind of have to use your acting skills and the audience's imagine, um, imagination as well as your own to try to create the scene. Your presentation was pretty unique, and you used the symbolism of a circus to describe the experience of being black in America and what you call the soul it takes to survive and thrive here. Elias, tell us more about that. I mean, uh, well, you couldn't have said it better yourself, but I think that uh, what we really wanted to do was capture the lifestyle and the hardships, the trials and tribulations of being black in America, but not only doing that, because we know showing the problem doesn't always give you the solution. Mm. So we wanted to also give you the solution, give you that sense of transcendence where we blasted off physically. I literally was uh, blasted out of a cannon, cannon at the end for the final scene, but metaphorically showing that you can tr- transcend these trials and tribulations, you can transcend these problems, and that youth everywhere, which is why I'm so grateful to be able to perform in one of the biggest speech and debate stages in America, which I said in my intro and I get to show black youth or minority youth any type of youth that you can transcend any problem or any thing that's going wrong Mm. at any time in any place because you have that power to overcome it with just the power of your voice Elijah, what did you hope the audience would get from your presentation? Um, I hoped and one of the biggest things that I think I strive for being a minority youth is that even though you're not old enough to vote, your voice still matters. Mm. Even though you might not have some of the same privileges as an adult would or a congresswoman would, you still have a voice that deserves to be heard. You still have a light that deserves to be to shine on anyone. And I think that with our piece being black and being um, uh, a part of the youth, we kind of I wanted to represent that everyone anywhere at any time could have a voice and it deserved to be listened to. Now, their coach, Noah Kaplan, is sitting right here, smiling and beaming, which I would imagine how how exciting it must be to watch your students like evolve and really just have this moment. So what was the process like for you as coach? Well, uh, 
these two gentlemen make it very easy. Um, they are a remarkable young men and um, have uh, really taken to this activity really well. They have some really wonderful natural gifts and are really open young men. Uh, they're the kind of kids that any coach would dream of having. They listen, they internalize, they take ideas and they make them their own. And they really find a way to bring themselves into every aspect of the performance. And they are hardworking young men. And they never stopped. Explain for us, especially those of us not so entrenched in this competitive world of speech and debate, the significance of them making it this far. Yeah, that's a great question because it really is, um, it's hard to describe actually all that must be done in order to get to this, this big of a stage. These students compete all year long, beginning in... November, going all the way to March, where the regular season ends and we have our state tournament. Uh, Elias and Elijah actually won the state tournament, and then they need to qualify for nationals. So the only top two competitors in each category in our district get to go to the national tournament. So not only do they win the state tournament, they go undefeated at our local tournaments. They then find themselves at the national qualifying tournament, and they win that tournament too. Once they've won that tournament, we kick it into high gear. We're running practices after school almost daily. And we get on an airplane, we go to uh, Kentucky, where they're competing against the best every district in the entire Mm. country has to offer. So they get to the stage there. And after, what, you guys had some 15 rounds or something like that? It was a crazy day. Yeah, about 200 competitors. For a week of competition, they are running this piece every day with the best the whole country has to offer. And they have to land in the top, you know, one, two, or three in every one of those rounds. And as the week goes on, the competition thins Mm. uh, and the rounds get harder and the competition gets more competitive. And you're also getting more and more tired because you're in these suits, you know, in (laughs) 98 degree. Yes, you guys, those suits did not breathe, did they? they No, (laughs) 98 degree heat in uh, Kentucky with like 100% humidity. And um, it's it's an endurance game. And uh, they they brought it every single time. It was a remarkable uh, thing to watch and and be a part of. And I was just so proud. I I beamed all week long um, just to see these young men. (laughs) Well, you're beaming now too. No doubt. they beat out uh, nearly 230 other students? 230 others at this tournament, but it's important to remember that those are the 230 best the entire country has to offer, and they have beat out thousands. So at the end of the day, there are dual competitors all over the country, thousands of them, and uh, they land in the top six of that number. It was a little nerve-wracking, especially being our first time on a stage that big. But the thing that I like to refer to most when people say, oh, pressure, it's a big uh, feat to do this. You had me must must be so nervous. When you love what you do, it is not hard to do it. When you know that you're sharing your story with as much people as possible, it is almost easy to do what we do. Because if you know you have someone that's the, took the time out of their day to dedicate themselves to listening to you wholeheartedly with all their effort, with all their heart, with all their mind, give their entire attention to you for 10 minutes, mm. I'm going to make sure I, got, I I say what I have to say. Regardless of what rank they give me at the end of the round, regardless if they don't even talk to me after I say what I have to say, if they are going to sit there and watch me speak for 10 minutes, I'm going to say what I got to say. I'm going to represent for my community, for my school, for my state, for my country. For the mm. what, what whatever I have to represent at that moment in time, I'm going to represent to the best of my ability. So it's not almost a nervous feeling. It's a prideful feeling. You're like, yeah, people are listening to me. 
even with my what my brother just said, not only just listen, but try to interpret and understand what you were trying to say. And that's why I love the term duo interpretation, because you're not only listening and watching something, you're trying to interpret it. Noah, why do you believe these opportunities for the arts and competition, mm-hmm. extracurricular activities and it seems that we hear over and over the the lack of funding and mm-hmm. a movement away from these types of um, activities. What? Why is this so important, you think? Well, I mean, it's important for so many reasons. Um, speech and debate in particular and the arts in general uh, helps kids discover the power of their own voice and their own story. Um, what I love about speech and debate, and you know, this extends into the other art forms, the you know, music and dance. Um, it helps young people empower themselves to become the individuals and the adults that they want to be. They m- manifest their story. They manifest the people they want to be by telling that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, discovering the power of story, discovering the power of um, telling that story well. And learning how to win with style, learning how to lose with style, learning how to mentor. And grace. Exactly. That's right. Um, Learning how to mentor and be mentored, learning how to listen, learning how to take advice and make it your own. Um, Those are the makings of a a really rich and um, powerful uh, life. And I I don't think you get that uh, always in a core class. You you need the space to really stretch that creativity. And speech and debate definitely gives us that chance. There is an especially captivating point in your presentation, Elias and Elijah. Let's just take a listen to what you two said. Last night, we slept on the southern shore of the Ohio River. This divided the North and the South during the Civil War. 160 years ago, if we were to be standing on a stage in Kentucky, it would probably be to be sold publicly or to be hanged. But today, we stand here before you on the greatest stage in speech and debate history. Proving that this history and these circumstances has allowed the black community to be strong, creative, and resilient. So Elias, what was the message there? Well, the crazy part is me and my brother, the night before the tournament, we were all downstairs. We had our regular team meeting, the meeting we have at the end of the day. And one of our coaches, Mr. Anderson, he's our dean at our school. He was one of our chaperones. He took me and my brother outside of the hotel that we were staying at, which is right next to the Ohio River. And he pointed to the river. He was like, what is that? And we were like, of course, easy answer, a river. And he was like, okay, and what's on top of the river? Oh, he's like, a bridge. And we were like, okay. And he was like, what river is that? And we are like, it's the Ohio River. And he's like, what does it represent? And we were like, we don't know. So he began to tell us. He was like, back during the Civil War times when we're talking about slavery and mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff. And he was like, that was the dividing line between the North and the South during the Civil War. So if a slave wanted to be free, he or she had to cross that river mm. in order to get to freedom. And way back then, if we were standing in that position, us as black men, if we were standing on that south side of that river, which we were, we would be slaves. We would not be free men. And we would not be able to do the things that we are doing at this day and era in this generation. So we were like, that's very eye-opening. And he did it to show us that we are not doing a very easy feat. 
And mm. us and our ancestors and the people before us have come a very long way for us to do what we do. So me and my brother, we went in our room that night and we were like, that was so captivating. That was so eye opening. We have to share that with our other competitors, with the judges when we get on that stage. So one of the most poignant parts of your presentation, you conceived the night before. Yes. yes <laughs> I think the night before. Uh, pretty amazing. I think all of our best kind of like most special things that we kind of created were kind of like on the fly. Yeah. I guess I think that's a, a little bit of the magic of it as, as well. Uh, and I think um, another shout out to Mr. Anderson. I think what he gave us probably the best, the inspiration for the best part of mm. our entire performance because it wasn't just that we we had done this feat. Yeah. It was that the reason we were able to be there in the first place is because our community works hard every single day for us to be able to do things like that. Back in the day, we didn't have those things. And our community shed blood, sweat, and tears for us to even be up on that stage. Our voice matters because of all the stuff that we had to go through. And I think that's the real significance of what we said. And I think it ties into our piece perfectly because the sole solution is you. You are the sole solution. And that is the name of your piece. Peace. Exactly. Peace. You can do it. You have a voice. Your voice matters. And we're here to show you how important that is. Elias and Elijah Goss are twins who attend Denver's East High School. They are national finalists and state champions and were the only students of color to advance to the finalist round in the dual interpretation category in speech and debate. Noah Kaplan served as their coach. We spoke in August. Thanks for joining us on this national holiday honoring late civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.